Amen. One of my favorite comic strips is Bill Keen's The Family Circus. And I love the one with the little girl. She's sitting on her bed with her baby brother in her lap. And she's reciting her version of the Christmas story. It goes like this. Jesus was born just in time for Christmas up at the North Pole, surrounded by eight tiny reindeer and the Virgin Mary. Then Santa Claus showed up with lots of toys and stuff and some swaddling clothes. The three wise men and the elves all sang carols while the little drummer boy and Scrooge helped Joseph trim the tree. In the meantime, Frosty the snowman saw this star, and on she goes. Needless to say, she had her facts about Christmas a little confused. But she's not the only one. For it seems that many Christmas presentations end up confusing the facts. People tend to either secularize or mythologize the meaning of Christmas. The secularized versions feature Santa and Mrs. Claus, Rudolph, Frosty the Snowman, the Grinch, Scrooge, even the Little Drummer Boy. While the mythologized versions keep the biblical characters, but they're taken out of their proper context. How often have you seen pictures of the stable? There's Mary with her hair freshly shampooed. Joseph, calm and collected. Baby Jesus is asleep on the soft hay, emitting an incandescent glow. Barnyard animals, well-behaved and perfectly silent, watch the miracle birth. Shepherds arrive on the scene, neatly attired, clean-cut, wearing brand-new bathrobes, no less. They're joined by wise men who arrive at the stable at the same time as the shepherds. They ride in on camels, wearing golden crowns on their head. And everyone in the scene sports a golden halo. I hate to burst your bubble, but none of the above actually happened on that first Christmas. You see, it's easy to develop the wrong ideas. One year, the youth group of a church close to our house, they sponsored a live nativity. And so Kathy and I decided we would bundle up our small children and we would go and visit the manger scene. Well, when the wise men arrived, I'll never forget Zach. He asked the question, he said, Mom, did the wise men really wear high tops? (laughs) Even as a preschooler, high top sneakers didn't seem authentic to him. Over the years, we've picked up all kinds of misinformation about the Christmas story. Reminds me of another cartoon Two kids, they're in the audience at the annual Christmas pageant when one child explains to the other, we know that Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem at night because everyone was wearing their bathrobe. (laughs) Well, this morning and next week, we want to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of Matthew and Luke. We want to examine the biblical text. We're going to try to sort out the facts from the fiction. We need to arrive at an accurate understanding of what happened 2,000 years ago on that first Christmas and again be challenged by its truth. So we begin this morning, Matthew chapter 2. The text tells us, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
These mysterious visitors to Jerusalem were called wise men. Or in the original Greek, magi. Who were these mysterious magi? Reminds me of a joke. Two elderly ladies, they're talking to each other. When one says to the other, a virgin birth I can believe, but finding three wise men? Oh, that's a bad joke. But actually, it's not hard to find these wise men in history. The Greek historian Herodotus identified them as a priestly caste of Medes, men who served as advisors in the royal court of Persia. Our English word magistrate is a direct derivative of this word magi. You see, the magi were men skilled in mathematics and science and astronomy and religion. They kept one eye on the sacred writings and the other eye on the heavens. They were on the lookout for a supernatural sign, and one appeared. They believed that a star in the heavens was pointing out the location of the Hebrew Messiah. You remember the Hebrew prophet Daniel was taken to Babylon around the year 605 B.C. He served there in the court of the Babylonians. In fact, he rose to a prominent position. He became the head of the Magi. No doubt these first century magi would have studied Daniel's 7th century prophecies. And Daniel 9 would have told them that the coming of Messiah was near. In that amazing prophecy of Israel's 70 weeks, I encourage you to go back and study it and learn it. Read it, please. In that prophecy, 600 years in advance, Daniel calculated the exact day that the Hebrew Messiah would present himself to his people. Thus, the Magi, in knowing that prophecy, knew that the time was approaching for Messiah to appear. These Magi were also familiar with another Oriental wise man named Balaam. Balaam, too, was privy to God's plans, and he had seen a star years in advance. Balaam lived 1,400 years before the time of Christ. But in Numbers chapter 24, Balaam predicted, I see him. But not now, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That scepter or king was associated with a star. What this star actually was, we're not sure. Bible scholars have made all kinds of suggestions, from Halley's Comet to the dog star to a nova to a meteorite perhaps. Famed astronomer Johannes Kepler, he theorized that the star, or the heavenly object as it is in the original, was an alignment of planets. Kepler had read a Jewish rabbi, a man named Arbarbanel, who predicted that when a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter occurred in the constellation of Pisces, the Messiah would come. I don't know how he got that information, but that's what he believed. That alignment was seen from Jerusalem over Bethlehem three times in the year 1603. It was Kepler's calculations that showed this alignment occurred once every 800 years. That meant that the same configuration would have been visible to the Magi at the time of Christ. Of course, how how an alignment of planets yielded precise enough navigation to pinpoint a single house, we're not sure. 
This leads me to think that perhaps it wasn't a natural phenomenon at all, but it was actually a supernatural phenomenon. Could it be that God put a light in the heavens for this very purpose? Maybe it was His Shekinah glory that pointed the way. Well, whatever the star was, the Magi reacted properly. You see, like the Jews, the Persians too were living under the Roman oppression and they longed to be free. And so when they heard of this Savior, this King, they came to Him to worship. And their worship was a role model for all who would follow their example. They came, they bowed, and they gave. And true worship, my friends, does all three. It doesn't expect Jesus to meet me on my terms. It comes to Him. It comes to where He's at. It comes on his terms. It swallows its pride and bows down. And then it gives to Jesus something of value. It comes, it bows, it gives. This is true worship, even today. Well, verse 3 tells us, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was frightened by the appearance of these magi. Now, we usually think of three wise men probably due to the three gifts that they brought to Jesus. Tradition even lists three names for the wise men, Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. But nowhere in the Bible does there say that there were three wise men. Certainly that there were just three. Notice when their caravan enters Jerusalem looking for the Messiah, it creates quite a stir among the locals. Three lone riders would have barely been noticed. These were Persians traveling through Roman-occupied territory. They might have been accompanied by a small army for protection. This caravan must have been larger than just a small posse. It was large enough to scare the puppet king, Herod. And the Magi would have been strangely dressed. They probably wore cone-shaped hats. They resembled the stereotypical picture we have of a wizard. And it's more likely they rode horses rather than camels, Arabian steeds. But what disturbed Herod most were their words. They said that they were looking for the king of the Jews. This was the official title that Caesar Augustus had given to Herod when he made him the king over Judea. Herod was the king of the Jews. Now these oriental bigwigs are looking for another king of the Jews. Herod was uncomfortable. Herod got a little harried. (laughs) And when Herod had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The word Christ is the Greek word for anointed. In Hebrew, it's the Messiah. See, all Jewish kings were anointed with oil. Thus, the action became a title for a special king, yet future. God promised King David an heir, an offspring, an eternal king who would rule over an eternal kingdom. Herod calls the leading Bible scholars to search the scriptures for where this Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, 
For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Jewish theologians point to what we call Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Messiah was to be born in the town of Bethlehem. It's astonishing that 730 years before the first Christmas, God revealed his son's birthplace. That alone is strong testimony to the divine authorship of your Bible. You know, the full quote from Micah is as follows. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathra, that's like saying Atlanta, Georgia. It's the city followed by the region. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. This is why we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. It was little among thousands. All kinds of little villages and hamlets dotted the Judean landscape. Bethlehem was just one of them. It was just a blip on the screen. Oh, don't blink. You might miss it. Yet ironically, one of the smallest cities of Judah would birth its greatest king. And what follows in Micah is truly amazing. For he says of Jesus, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The word translated everlasting, it means from eternity onward. It speaks of an immeasurable duration. As Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. Go back in your mind as far as you can think. How far back can you think? 500 years? 5,000 years? 500,000 years? How far can your imagination stretch? 5 billion, 5 quintillion years? Go back as far as your mind can imagine. And there was Jesus. Someone translated this term everlasting as beyond the vanishing point. When time fades into eternity, there stands Jesus. The Hebrew Messiah, the child born in the little town of Bethlehem and laid in a manger, had been around since before time began. His birth was not his beginning. And the implications are provocative. The babe in Bethlehem was the eternal God. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He has no beginning and he shall have no end. Jesus is God. Oh, if Herod had just kept reading in Micah, it might have dawned on him the vanity of his resistance. But then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. This provided Herod, the newborn king's approximate age. Apparently, he was born when the star appeared. Later, Jesus is called a young child. In other words, he's no longer an infant when the wise men arrive. By the time the wise men get to Bethlehem, Jesus was likely two years old. And Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And of course, as we'll see later, this was a cover-up. 
Rather than worship the king, Herod plotted to assassinate him. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. How many of you have a nativity set at home? Yeah, almost everybody. Does it include wise men? Oh boy. Most nativities do. They depict the wise men and the shepherds together at the manger. But the Magi's visit occurred months after Jesus' birth, perhaps years, and after the shepherds' departure. Luke 2 tells us that Jesus was born in a stable. But here in Matthew 2, by the time the Magi actually arrived, Joseph has moved his family into a permanent home. Here's a picture that better portrays the wise men's visit. The child was a toddler. Perhaps you lived in Bethlehem at the time. You owned a nice little ranch down there on Poplar Poplar Street. Imagine the scene. An oriental caravan, conspicuous enough to shake up the capital city, descends on your tiny little village. This entourage turns down your street. Oriental dignitaries, they walk up to the rented house next door. They're greeted by a humble peasant couple that's just moved in. Their little boy's been running around the yard, you've noticed. What are kings doing at the carpenter's house? Curiosity gets the best of you, and so you hide in the bushes and peer through the windows. And you see the strangest sight. Oriental noblemen bowing before a toddler. Now, if you're the parent of a toddler here this morning, I'm sure there's a lot of things you've wanted to do with your two-year-old, but I'll bet worship him has never been one of them. (laughs) How would you respond to see global ambassadors on their knees worshiping the kid next door? Yet that's what happened. You know, it's interesting the reactions to Jesus that we see In the Christmas story, even today, people respond to Jesus in one of these three ways. We see antagonism. We see ambivalence. And then, of course, we see adoration. Some people, like King Herod, are antagonistic toward Jesus. Herod hated the thought of a rival king. He didn't want to serve anyone. He wanted to be served. He opposed Jesus at all costs. And there are folks today, just like Herod, they want to be their own king. And thus they view Jesus as a threat to their autonomy, to their authority, to their lifestyle. They don't want God in their life. God cramps their style. He gets in their way. They prefer to sit on the throne of their life and call their own shots. Any interference ends up the subject of their hatred. A rival king provokes their hostility. There are those who are antagonistic toward Jesus. Other people are like Herod's scholars. They're ambivalent. They might even be religious. They know their Bibles. Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. 
The scholars knew his whereabouts, but they never bothered to come and visit him. And likewise, there are folks today who understand the truth. They know a lot about Jesus. They even study the scriptures, but they make no attempt to seek him. They keep him at a safe distance. They ignore the living Lord. Oh, they like their religion. They even say they believe, but they prefer to view Jesus as a relic of history, a tradition that spices up their life. But they keep him in the past and treat him as if he has no real relevance for their lives today. That's why some people hate Jesus. Other people just ignore Jesus. But like the Magi, there are still a few folks today who adore Jesus. They're so consumed with the living Lord Jesus that they're willing to sacrifice and embark on the longest of journeys and risk their safety and comfort to come and worship Him. Wise men come on Jesus' terms, not their own. They humble themselves and bow before His will. They give back to Him some of the blessings that He has given to them. I hope that you'll examine your heart this Christmas season. Which type of person are you? Do you despise Jesus and view Him as a threat? Do you ignore Him and consider Him irrelevant? Or are you a wise guy? Do you live to worship Jesus? I sure hope so. Well, verse 11 tells us what the wise men gave to Jesus. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there may have been three, there may have been 30, there may have been 300 wise men. But we know that they brought three very appropriate gifts. Gold was the gift for a king. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he wants to be king of your heart. Frankincense is for a priest. And before God, Jesus is our go-between. He's our intermediary. The Bible tells us Jesus is a faithful and merciful high priest. And myrrh, myrrh was a strange gift for an infant. In antiquity, myrrh was used as a burial spice, the equivalent of an embalming fluid. This would have been given to a man sentenced to death. And of course, this was Jesus' mission. His purpose in coming into the world was to die in our place for our sin. From his crib, Jesus was focused on his cross. Famous artist Holman Hunt, he painted this scene of Jesus in his father's carpenter shop. The shadow behind him foreshadows his inevitable destiny. From the day he was born, Jesus was headed to the cross. Here's an eloquent description. One author writes, Those soft little hands, fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up to a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. All three gifts were fitting for Jesus. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, and myrrh for a sacrifice.
And then verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, the wise men departed for their own country another way. Some divine intelligence was passed on to the wise men. God made sure that they were privy to Herod's real motives. Rather than return the way they came, through Jerusalem, they took a different route home. And I'm sure the phrase, another way, referred to roads and crossings and caravan routes charted out on a map. Yet I can't help but to think that when they went home another way, it might imply another way of life. For when you meet Jesus, and when you bow your life to Him, you always leave headed another way, His way. In fact, the word repent, it means an about face. It means a change of direction. When you truly repent, you turn and you go another way, His way. A Christian is a person under new management. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph is also given some top secret instructions. And again, an angel appears to him saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And just like that, the heavenly child becomes an earthly refugee. He flees his country and he seeks political asylum in Egypt. Good thing they didn't build a wall. Of course, back in Jerusalem, King Herod, he continued to seethe. History tells us that this Herod, he was a little man with a big ego. He stood just four foot four and he suffered an extreme inferiority complex. He was a paranoid person. Once he suspected his wife and his brother-in-law of plotting a coup, he had his own family executed. Five days before the little king died, he put to death his oldest son for the very same reason. Thought that he was up to a, a coup d'etat. Caesar Augustus used to say, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Not a good thing to say of a Jewish king. In fact, Jewish history tells us that when Herod died, he knew that no one would mourn his death. And thus he arrested 70 of Israel's most respected citizens and gave, them, gave people orders to slaughter them all the moment that he passed away. He wanted to be sure that there would be someone crying when he passed. Trust me, this man was a certifiable sicko. And this is why God knew that King Herod would never rest knowing that a rival king was waiting in the wings. And so to protect our Messiah, the angel instructed Joseph to leave for Egypt with the child and with his mother. And Joseph immediately obeyed. In fact, this was Joseph's trademark, by the way. Joseph never had to be told twice. I think obedience was Joseph's middle name. Oh, that we would be like Joseph. It says, when he arose, that is the very next day. He didn't even have to think about it. He took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and, there, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord 
through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Reminds me of the little girl who painted a strange picture in Sunday school. It happened to be Christmas time. And what she had drawn was supposed to be a nativity scene. Instead, the little girl had painted what looked like a few passengers on a 757 jet airplane. That's when she explained to her mother, Well, Mom, that's Pontius the pilot in the front seat. And that's Joseph and Mary right behind him. And that fat man in the back row, he's round John Virgin. But the mother asked, Honey, why are they all on an airplane? The little girl answered, Why, Mom, that's the flight to Egypt. That was great. That was good. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And this is the anger of a madman. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined. From the wise men. And this is where we get the idea that Jesus was around two years old. That was the target age that Herod deduced from his conversation with the Magi. And what followed was a case of mass infanticide. This was Bethlehem's Holocaust. Thanks to Herod, 16 years later, Bethlehem High School would graduate very few students. He wiped out an entire age group. Matthew notes Jeremiah 31, how it predicted Herod's terror 600 years in advance. Jeremiah 31 verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, that is a nearby city, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Moms who lost their kids couldn't stop weeping. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, a few months after Herod's despicable genocide of the babies of Bethlehem, the Lord judged this evil tyrant. Herod contracted a fever as well as other symptoms. In fact, here's Josephus' observation. He says, infection seized his whole body. There was a gentle fever upon him and an intolerable itching over all the surface of his body, continual pains in his colon, tumors on his feet, and an inflammation of the abdomen and a putrefaction of his privy member that produced worms. Some historians believe that Herod's malady was a kidney disease that had had, uh, developed a case of gangrene. Others say that it was an STD. Whatever it was, I think all the men in the room this morning would agree that a putrefaction of your privy member accompanied by worms is a serious suffering indeed. (laughs) Apparently, in the end, Herod got what he deserved. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. 
It's time to head home. And home for Joseph and Mary was Nazareth. They had come to Bethlehem because of the census requirement decreed by Rome. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. You see, after King Herod died, his kingdom was divided among his three sons. Archelaus ruled Judea, Antipas the Galilee, and Philip was king over the Golan, the land northeast of the Jordan River. And of his sons, Archelaus was the most ruthless. Like his father, he used the sword to solve his problems. Again, Josephus recounts how once he put down a revolt from the religious Jews by slaughtering 3,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem at one time. Archelaus' cruelty created such opposition among the Jews, the Romans deposed him and sent him into exile to France. Later, Rome turned Judea into a province and they placed it under a governor. Any ideas as to what his name? The infamous Pontius Pilate. Well, verse 22, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside, Joseph turned aside into the region of Galilee. Joseph had dealt with Herod. He was happy to avoid his crazy son. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now the Old Testament never predicted that Jesus would come from Nazareth per se but that he would be called a Nazarene. The root word, netzir, root for Nazarene, means to sprout. The Old Testament also translates the term as the branch. A sprout or a branch was the name given to Messiah since he would be a branch from David's family tree. Isaiah 11 verse 1 reads, There shall come forth a a rod from the stem of Jesse, that is David's father, and a branch, or netzir, shall grow out of his roots. When you refer to Jesus as the Nazarene, you are actually calling him the branch. And thus it fulfilled scripture for Jesus to hail from Nazareth, not because of the city of Nazareth per se, but because of the meaning of the word. Since he was from Nazareth, he was called Nazarene, Netzir, or the branch. And this may have been what was in the mind of old blind Bartimaeus. The blind man who lay in the streets of Jericho and begged just for loose change. You remember, Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was near. And remember his response. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus associated Nazareth or Netzir with the branch from King David's family tree. And here's where I want to kind of end it this morning. What kind of associations do you make at Christmas time? So often this time of year, we use the term the Christmas spirit. Isn't it odd we don't say that about any other holiday? You never hear about the Labor Day spirit or President Day spirit, or even the Thanksgiving spirit. But there is a special mood associated with Christmas. It's real. There is a definite Christmas spirit. Some folks in our society associates Christmas, the Christmas spirit, with the spirit of revelry. Christmas is a time to party. It's an excuse for excessive eating and drinking. 
For other people, it's a spirit of greed and instant gratification and conspicuous consumption. It's a time to run up the credit cards to attempt to keep up with the Joneses. For still others, the Christmas spirit is the spirit of human kindness. It's the glorification of the best of humanity. It's the time to whitewash all of our flaws and pretend that we're not as bad as we thought. Oh, we are capable, after all, of solving our problems. I was once watching a televised Christmas special. It was hosted by the famous DJ, Casey Kasin. At the end of the program, Kasin made this statement. He said, Christmas used to be for Christians who worship Jesus. Now Christmas is for all men, for everyone interested in peace on earth and goodwill toward men. As if lasting peace can truly be brought about by man's ingenuity. Sorry, friends. Mankind's had his shot. For the last 6,000 years, man has tried to create peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And we've struck out. On that first Christmas morning, the angels promised peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But their promise of peace was packaged with a Savior. Only Jesus can bring true peace to our hearts and our marriages, and our homes, and our families, and our communities. Here's what I believe. The true spirit of Christmas is a spirit of worship, and adoration, and submission. The wise men came not to a party, but to bow to a Savior. They came not to get, but to give. Not to display faith in humanity, but to express their faith in the chosen King. In fact, without Christ, I believe you're not even entitled to Christmas. If you haven't embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, just sleep in on December 25th. For the true Christmas spirit isn't a spirit of revelry or spirit of greed or a spirit of human achievement. It is the spirit of Jesus. It is the spirit of worship and praise for our Savior. Never forget the words of the wise men. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Wise men and women still worship Jesus Christ.